Hello, welcome to our newest episode of Stern Chats. It's your host, Ashley. Today, Muyesera and I had the pleasure of speaking with Gino Catani on all things innovation. Gino joined Stern as an assistant professor of management and organization in September 2004. Professor Catani's research is primarily focused on technological innovation and competition, interfirm mobility, creativity, and social networks. Our conversation today ran the gamut. We focused a ton on creativity, what it is, and how as future or current organization leaders, we can encourage innovation. And Professor Katani leaves us with some awesome book recommendations. I know I can't wait to check them out. And with that, enjoy the show. Professor Katani, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you as a professor, previously as a student at NYU uh, for strategy courses. And to me, I found your take on what it takes to truly set up organizations in a modern world for innovation, not just structurally, but through human design, uh, really interesting. And so what we really want to do today is get to know you and your journey from um, Italy to NYU, uh, but also get your take on innovation and creativity and how organizations can best set themselves up for success in this world that is changing so much today from uh, remote, hybrid, and all the in-person conversations that are happening. So to get started, your background, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, first of all, let me thank you for the opportunity to join us today. I mean, uh, thanks for the very kind introduction. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I'm an immigrant. Actually, I come from a sort of a family of immigrants. My my uh, uh, mother's father actually was born in the United States, although they moved back to to Italy when he was very, very, very young. And my other grandfather, my father's father, was uh, migrated to Egypt <laughs> Uh, at a very early age uh, to essentially support his family. So uh, I consider myself an immigrant and I'm happy to be uh, because uh, I joined um, the uh, U U.S. academic system uh, as an academic already. I was the equivalent of an assistant professor in uh, PISA where I studied as an undergraduate and, and where I also um, got accepted into the PhD program. And then I spent one year as a visiting fellow scholar at MIT, Sloan um, School of Management in 1995-96, and went back to Italy. I completed my doctoral studies there, but then I, 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 grew, uh, I became increasingly dissatisfied with the academic system in, uh, in my home country. So I decided to uh, go for another PhD, more structured uh, PhD, and... I was lucky enough to, to join uh, the Wharton School of Management, where I got my uh, PhD in, uh, in management and uh, business economics. And, and then my first job was at Stern. Uh, so I've been at Stern ever since, uh, starting in 2004. And, and so far, I've been very happy at Stern. And um, at Stern, I had the opportunity to continue my work, my research, uh, and also get to, to, to start new projects with uh, uh, faculty members my, in, in, within my uh, department, but also continue, continue my collaborations with other scholars uh, from, from Europe and the United States. Um, 
so my my background is primarily in uh, management um, and my research is characterized by two main research streams one is more squarely on uh, around uh, creativity innovation with a social network angle and the second stream is uh, social evaluation and and I basically consider the two streams as highly complementary because one is more more focused on conditions uh, whether at the individual team or even organizational level that uh, facilitate uh, the generation of novelty uh, whether it's a uh, a creative outcome like a performance in a movie or a new technology or a new product the other stream of research on the contrary is more focused on the receiving end uh, and the different different type of audiences from users peers critics that are interested in uh, evaluating this novelty and how these different audiences may have different uh, evaluative uh, criteria, different logics uh, by which they assess, uh, sometimes discount, some others support and legitimate uh, uh, this novelty. So I think the, the two the two research streams uh, speak to each other, inform each other, um, and uh, I consider them uh, part of the same uh, basic narrative, if you wish. Uh, yeah. So that is in, in a nutshell uh, uh, my background is also the kind of work that I'm doing. Of course, there are other projects that are uh, moving also in other directions, but uh, but those are the two uh, main uh, research streams uh, so far. Amazing. So when we look at things like innovation and creativity, the core of the research that you focus on, can you tell us a little bit more about what your research has found uh, makes some organizations stand out from others? In other words, what are organizations doing right and what are organizations doing wrong in terms of innovation and creativity? Well, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting question, also a very complex one to answer. But uh, based on my work, uh, especially my uh, my work at uh, Corning, uh, that has been probably the, the focus of my, of my uh, one chapter in my dissertation and also the focus of uh, subsequent uh, research projects, one thing that emerged from uh, studying Corning uh, and other similar companies over the years is uh, this uh, incredible uh, focus uh, on innovation and and also uh, building an organization that really uh, supports innovation on multiple levels, uh, not only at the uh, very high level, the top management, but also at uh, lower levels within the organizations. And innovation, I mean, especially if you consider a more uh, radical type of innovation uh, requires uh, supporting management and uh, supporting organization. And the challenge is to be able to understand that certain types of innovations require not only resources, but also time uh, to bear fruits. Uh, so, for instance, the patience, in quotes, that uh, some, some organizations exhibit compared to others that just want to, to get the results as quickly as possible is it's an important distinguishing uh, Characteristic. Also, the uh, the top management understanding of uh, the challenges that innovators face is very important. So, for instance, uh, companies like Corning point to certain positions only people that were innovators themselves, uh, which means that they understand the process of innovation. When, especially when the process, as I said before, is not uh, directed to generating uh, incremental innovations, more of the same, in other words, but uh, trying to really develop. Uh, breakthrough technologies, breakthrough products that sometimes can also lead to the emergence of new markets or or reshape uh, existing markets, and also which uh, I mean is uh, is part of the conversation, but uh, it's easier 
to make that uh, point, but more, much more difficult to stick to it is kind of shield the company, the organization, especially if it's uh, listed on the stock exchange market from the pressure of Wall Street. In other words, uh, delivering performance uh, targets in the short term, which is clearly inconsistent with uh, the logic of uh, uh, of, uh, of the objective, if you wish, uh, of developing uh, uh, radical innovations. That takes time, uh, and also the results may not uh, immediately obvious in the short, sometimes not even in the medium terms. Uh, so these are some of the ingredients uh, uh, that uh, seem to, to 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 be relevant to explain clearly the, the, the success over time uh, of Corning or 3M firms that have been consistently innovative. And the other thing which I found that uh, very uh, intriguing is the way, uh, uh, for instance, uh, some of these companies frame even failures. Uh, it's not framed as, as uh, embarrassment or something that we should uh, forget about, but failure sometimes is a learning opportunity. So it's actually is a, is a one of the steps towards uh, de- the development of something that uh, can be truly uh, revolutionary. So people in some of these companies are not afraid of making mistakes or uh, because that is part of the process. Uh, obviously, you cannot afford to fail too many times, correct? But uh, but the idea is that there is some important lesson to be learned even from mistakes. And, and, uh, and therefore, they're not framed as embarrassment, but they are just framed as opportunity uh, to enhance your learning uh, towards innovation. Seems to be an obvious thing to say, but I mean, uh, how you concretely create an organization that thinks that way and and is consistent with uh, this uh, belief, I think, is uh, is the, the real challenge and challenge also for managers. Yeah, that's that's great. And I remember um, I took your uh, strategy one class, um, and the Corning case was honestly really phenomenal. So I'm glad you brought it up. It just sparked a lot of good memories. So you started to talk a little bit about specific things that companies should do, one of them being getting comfortable with failure, right? Which I think in theory is great and we all agree with it. But what specifically do companies put in place to be able to become comfortable with the things that do spark innovation and failure being one of them? That's a great question. And uh, and I think that... Uh, uh, what I, every time I visited Corning, it's, uh, this is not just uh, written on paper, but is a part of their modus operandi, correct? And of course, this is not uh, created overnight. Uh, it, it, it requires, first of all, a strong um, uh, uh, commitment on the part of the top management uh, to really uh, make it uh, clear that failure is part of uh, the learning process, correct? Uh, it's part of what we are as innovators, uh, which means that you have to have people that first and foremost understand uh, the complexity of uh, innovation as a process uh, because they themselves actually experience that process. Um, so that's why many of the top managers uh, call him, like in other uh, uh, firms that are focused on innovation, sometimes are many, very often are people that were themselves in- innovators, okay? And, and only later in their uh, career um, uh, took on uh, managerial position. So that is very important. So you have to have people that uh, understand the process and also speak uh, pretty much the same language of the innovators. That doesn't mean that you have to be always uh, lenient or indulgent or, or tolerant. I mean, uh, sometimes it's important to to set uh, clear targets and also um, send a signal that, I mean, you can experiment, you can fail, but uh, obviously there are some 
some, uh, some, some limits, okay, uh, partly because of resource constraints. At a deeper level, you have to really understand the process and the challenges and understand that uh, this is part of, uh, of the effort to achieve a particular goal. Uh, so I talk sometimes to some of my for- former students working in uh, uh, other firms or other organizations, and, and th- this is not the culture of those organizations. Uh, so failure is perceived as, as a threat uh, because your career could be at risk, correct? Or you might be stigmatized uh, for making mistakes. And so clearly uh, is something that um, uh, requires some um, effort, commitment uh, uh, to, to, to be implemented effectively, correct? I mean, uh, that is the real challenge uh, for some organizations. With that said, you mentioned, you know, working with former students uh, on their current roles, uh, being MBAs, we all uh, hope at the very least that this journey will lead us into uh, being in the types of roles where we are tasked with creating innovative teams and leading with creativity at the forefront um, of our management style. What are some of the ways that you can evaluate organizations' capacity for innovation, but also your own team's ability to innovate? I think it's very important, not uh, only for MBA students, I would say also for faculty members when they, if they have the opportunity, of course, they choose uh, which organizations or which uh, school or university uh, work to work for. I mean, it's important to understand uh, who's your employer, correct? I mean, I think... Um, sometimes it could be better to work for a company that uh, maybe has less status, but is much more, uh, much much more uh, willing to to really uh, foster creativity and innovation in a, in a substantive sense of the of the term, and create an environment where uh, uh, this creativity and innovation can 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 thrive and flourish. Correct. Uh, um, uh, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you have to work necessarily for a small firm. You can also work for a larger and uh, more established firm. But clearly, uh, uh, selecting which company to work for is the beginning, correct? I mean, we we know f- from what we read about, what we hear, also hear from uh, other people, uh, that some organizations really mean what they say, right? Uh, and they act upon it. So, and they create an environment that is truly unique uh, in that respect. I mean, of course, we can always make. Uh, the same names, Google, you can make uh, the name of Apple, but, uh, but there are many more companies that are truly focused on innovation uh, besides and beyond uh, the usual suspects. One thing that I think is, for me, is very important is, which is essential to innovation as a process is uh, the, the excitement of the process itself, correct? Uh, I think that sometimes, unfortunately, partly because of the way we are evaluated, we are evaluated based on the uh, on a deliverable, the outcome, correct? And that makes perfect sense. Of course, uh, you cannot afford to to waste resources without, at some point, achieving a particular result. But I think the process is, uh, it, it has to be fun. So you have to enjoy the process. Uh, I mean, uh, it strikes me for every time I uh, show in class uh, this very famous video from IDO, the shopping cart, uh, uh, which, uh, but there are many such stories how people involved in the process of making of, uh, of making this uh, uh, new type of shopping cart uh, um, enjoy the process uh, even more so than the outcome, correct? Uh, and so the the question is, being uh, if you are a manager of eventually in a firm, to be able to create 
uh, a situation where people involved enjoy the process working together, correct? Uh, whatever background they're coming from. Uh, so the process has to be fun, uh, stimulating and uh, embracing, correct? Uh, then the outcome becomes, uh, um, uh, remains important, but the outcome will be uh, more likely the, the result of this process. Um, so I think, I mean, for instance, I, another case that uh, uh, is uh, very illuminating in this, in, in this particular case, in, in contest, is uh, Pixar and uh, the, the type of um, routines, uh, practices uh, that uh, Pixar has developed over the years uh, and that uh, attend to the, to the creation and development of any new animation movie. And the process, of course, is very uh, complex, but also uh, is a process where people enjoy the process itself, uh, uh, and they are not, uh, they don't feel necessarily uh, judged by others. Actually, uh, everybody is willing to contribute, and and I mean, uh, the, the 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 contribution of each one uh, is more than welcome. Correct. Uh, so it's really an engaging process, and nobody cares about being the person to have, to have the last word uh, because. What really matters is how, through this process, we all contribute to the final outcome. I mean, these uh, practices, routines uh, that firms have developed over the years, of course, are require time, patience on the part of the managers. Uh, they're not, as I said even before, uh, created uh, overnight, uh, but they might uh, explain why some firms are doing much better than others uh, over time. I actually just got a chance to watch the idea video of the shopping cart just yesterday in a different class. So it's fresh in my mind. It's funny that you bring that up. Uh, but one of the things uh, that I think serves as a perfect segue into a topic I'd love to get your take on is within that video, I mean, it really serves as an example of bringing people into a room together, having ideas float in the room, bouncing things up on the board, things like that. And in this world that we have been in over the last two years, where so much of our collaboration has moved behind the screens of Zoom chats and things like that, I would love to hear what you have been seeing out there in uh, your work as far as how are organizations pivoting to innovate in a remote world where some of those structures have definitely shifted. Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I will try to address first your question, then add something that is more personal. Uh, but uh, in uh, my sense is that uh, it really dep- uh, it's a, there is an important distinction to be made in terms of uh, what kind of, first of all, uh, uh, products or services uh, firms uh, uh, make or produce uh, and the kind of tasks that you are considering, correct? Uh, because uh, you can think about situations where uh, certain tasks tend to be more relational, so it's important to be in the same physical space. Uh, I think the ideal ideal case is actually quite a, a good illustration of this um, a specific situation where it's very important in the ideation phase in particular for people to be in the same room. Uh, uh, although uh, IDEO itself is a recognizing because of COVID-19, that uh, there might be a complementary way of achieving the same goal without expecting people to be necessarily uh, in the same uh, physical space uh, in uh, in the main location of the company. And so they are actually considering 
as we speak, the possibility of having decentralized physical spaces where people that tend to live closer together can meet and, and they work on a particular project. And they are also trying to use some of these uh, new communication platforms uh, to get uh, involved their customers instead of uh, physically spending time at the customer's location to, to have ongoing conversations uh, with their customers uh, um, uh, using these platforms. And that actually allows um, IDO, at least the team that is trying to work a solution uh, for these customers to have a, a much richer and ongoing conversations because uh, you don't have to be physically there for an end number of time and uh, of days. You can actually have a conversation with your customers uh, uh, for a, a much longer time period without facing the same kind of cost and constraints. Um, but uh, there might be so for this kind of, uh, as I said, for this kind of uh, uh, situations where tasks are, tends to be more relational. Uh, it's uh, COVID-19 working remote uh, uh, poses uh, greater challenges, correct? Uh, so that's why creating this decentralized um, uh, structure could partly uh, preserve some of the remote um, type of work, but also uh, uh, getting, uh, meeting like a, like a reaching a compromise between uh, being forced to go back to uh, the, the original physical space in San Francisco, at least in the case of IDEO, and work more uh, closer to where you live, correct? Uh, but uh, there are other types of tasks uh, that tends to be much more uh, uh, transactional, uh, where uh, being uh, in the in the same physical space uh, m- might be less uh, critical, correct? I mean, I mean many uh, software development companies are not as uh, pressured to to have people coming together because. You can work pretty well staying in a, in, a, in a different location, whether it's at home or in a different part of the world. It's a different story. But in that case, I mean, you don't have to be in the same in the same in the same location, right? In the same physical space. So it's really, I mean, some of the problems or some of the challenges are really uh, dependent on on uh, what kind of uh, firms you are considering, what kind of um, uh, tasks you are also considering. So for products that are physical, uh, uh, being in the same uh, location, physical spaces could be much more relevant and critical than for products that uh, don't really have physical dimension uh, because people can uh, work uh, remote more easily. And by the way, that is pretty much what is was happening anyway, even before COVID-19, correct? I mean, so people working contributing different modules, let's say, uh, if you wish, of of a particular or different applications uh, uh, located in different uh, parts of the world. Uh, so that uh, uh, for, for that kind of um, firms, uh, uh, things have not changed dramatically even during uh, COVID-19. But for other firms, those for which, as I said, uh, tasks tend to be more relational, for those firms, the challenge was uh, pretty uh, serious. Uh, so... Uh, that's where the changes um, have taken place, yeah. Yeah, so just to follow up there, so in the spirit of innovation, is there anything that you think companies could focus on or maybe like an untapped market in ensuring that if you're in more relational roles that and you want to work from home, right, or the company is doing more of a hybrid or maybe even a 100% work from home model, right? Is there something else that should be or could be developed, right, to make that easier? 
and I'll give you an example. So I'm a product manager in my day job. And um, one of the challenges working from home is sometimes I just need to whiteboard, right? And sort of hard to do that on the computer. But wouldn't it be awesome if I just had like a tablet that my company supplied me where I'm writing on the tablet and then it's on the screen and everyone can see it. Is there something like that that could make the relational thing work in this type of environment? I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that uh, uh, not to make, again, the same example, uh, IDEO is uh, is uh, considering uh, some of these options, providing uh, uh, employees with uh, 3D printers, for instance, or other tools that allow uh, that allow the, the people to, uh, uh, for instance, developed uh, even at home or wherever they work, uh, prototypes, uh, pretty much in the same spirit of what was happening before before COVID when they were actually joining the same uh, physical space. So um, I think that this is happening. Some firms are actually moving already in, in this direction, uh, pretty much in the spirit of what you were uh, referring to. And um, in that case, I mean, you can still preserve creating an hybrid uh, kind of uh, uh, setup uh, or arrangement, you can uh, you can definitely preserve uh, the relational without becoming uh, too transactional, which would be inconsistent with uh, um, what the company has been doing and uh, what, as, uh, what eventually explains also the success of the firm. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it would be important, uh, even if you um, uh, still accommodate uh, uh, these uh, remote uh, type of work uh, to have uh, periodically um, um, people uh, coming together and, and uh, sitting in the same physical space and and interacting uh, the way they used to. Okay, uh, but uh, so that is something that, uh, I, as I said before, IDEO is uh, uh, considering right now as we speak and. And many other firms are actually thinking uh, along uh, similar lines. Uh, uh, of course, I mean, for for other firms, uh, as I mentioned before, I mean, especially software development companies, they were already working largely remote. So for them, is is uh, it's a different type of uh, uh, game. Um, but uh, for others, uh, clearly, um, if they want to move to a, an hybrid uh, type of uh, arrangement, uh, there are some challenges, but uh, but there are ways around around that. Professor, can you tell us a little bit about like your thoughts as you look into the future of uh, what the future of innovation and the future of work potentially looks like as we gaze ahead? It's an even more challenging question, correct? I mean, uh, then uh, you can embarrass yourself some, uh, by saying something that is uh, uh, is not uh, accurate, or maybe in a few uh, in the in the future will uh, be disproved. Or, but. Uh, to me, I mean, I think one thing that, uh, and I don't see that much, uh, well, at least it's becoming more of a central topic, in, uh, not just in the context of uh, innovation, but in a, in a more general sense. I think that uh, uh, we keep saying that we live in a, uh, in a small world, uh, uh, increasingly integrated, although sometimes there, is, uh, there are centrifugal forces as, as the events that are um, happening uh, right now that seem to be but definitely uh, uh, leveraging diversity in a in a much broader sense of the, of the term is is very important correct i mean and uh, I mean, we are talking about diversity in terms of gender race age i mean there is a lot of work but i believe that uh, uh, one thing uh, is to claim that we are leveraging diversity one thing is to really do it correct and i think uh, that would be 
in my opinion, something we should do more. I mean, we are, many people are doing it already, but it could be done even more. And, I, I, and it would be interesting to see uh, in the future where the firms that are really serious about promoting diversity are becoming more innovative, correct? I mean, and b- besides and beyond the rhetoric of uh, paying attention to uh, diversity, correct? And that would be an interesting thing to investigate uh, from, from a, uh, as a researcher, but also for firms to really invest in seriously. Um, the other interesting uh, thing to me is, uh, uh, which is also kind of related to my, uh, to my research, is to understand uh, to what extent uh, firms uh, truly uh, engage in uh, um, um, reutilizing some of, the, some of the knowledge that they've accumulated over time. So one thing that uh, is, clearly, is clearly emerging from uh, different studies in the space of innovation is uh, uh, the ability of firms uh, to uh, preserve the memory of what they're doing. Uh, I mean, this seems to be an obvious thing, but it's not necessarily an obvious thing. Uh, and it goes back to one of the points that I was making before about how you frame mistakes. Uh, just to give an example, Corning uh, developed recently, I mean, a few years ago, uh, the first type of Gorilla Glass that has become um, uh, the standard uh, glass uh, on smartphones in general, correct? And and the interesting uh, story behind the Gorilla Glass is that that was a glass, a type of glass, that Corning had developed in the 60s and uh, for completely different applications, didn't turn out to be commercially successful and and it was shelved, but was not forgotten, was shelved uh, uh, in, uh, uh, with the expectations that later in the future, uh, it could have been uh, uh, useful uh, for an, an application that was not at that time uh, anticipated. Uh, so uh, it, uh, many firms sometimes... Um, feel embarrassed, as I said before, because of their mistakes, which uh, suggests that uh, their memory of what they did in the past can be very limited. Uh, And so for me, uh, uh, the idea of um, firms that are willing and capable uh, of preserving memory of what they've been doing over the years, successful or not, and how they eventually try to find new applications for what uh, they did in the past, uh, I think it's a very important uh, uh, part of uh, the innovation story, and and uh, and Corning is not the only one, but uh, but uh, it's clearly a great example of how uh, certain uh, set, certain companies have this ability. Uh, another uh, interesting uh, to me uh, area for future research, which uh, I think uh, uh, I would like to pursue uh, moving forward, is uh, the interface between technology and art. I think that, uh, for instance, uh, Connie has a very interesting, you know, one of the most beautiful museums, uh, glass museums. Uh, and uh, the interesting uh, part, story here is that uh, sometimes uh, scientists uh, work with uh, artists, uh, glass uh, blowers, truly people coming from, for instance, Murano in Venice, and they learn from each other. And, um, and that uh, can be interpreted in many different ways. It could be that some of these uh, uh, artists are users that have specific needs. So in other words, they need glass with certain characteristics for their work, but and therefore they are just customers, if you wish. Uh, that would be one uh, 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 reductionist explanation. I think uh, the, the true story is that these artists might provide ideas for inventors, 
But at the same time, the artist can learn uh, more about uh, the property of their materials in their art. So this, uh, say, communication or uh, exchange of ideas, uh, of experiences, is very interesting. And and how eventually even uh, uh, an aesthetic uh, aspect uh, uh, can contribute to innovation is another interesting area, correct? Uh, um, I think that uh, if you look at architecture, uh, the, the, we tend to appreciate the beauty of uh, the buildings, for instance, but sometimes the material that have been uh, developed to make those buildings uh, is part of uh, the contributes to the to the explanation of the aesthetic uh, part of, of of a building. So if you if you know if you if you study uh, the work of Frank Gehry and is uh, the company that he created, uh, that is pretty much uh, an ongoing conversation between engineering, material science, but also the, the beauty uh, of, of the aesthetic part of, of the buildings that Frank Gehry and his partners have created over time. So I think these are, for me at least, very interesting areas. Uh, um, I think that Steve Jobs already d- d- made an important, uh, important statement in this area, correct? I mean, uh, the way you re- revolutionize uh, computer industry by uh, adding this aesthetic uh, uh, dimension, but uh, but the aesthetic is not just the visual part; it's also affecting uh, the technology side. So that is the interesting conversation to me, uh, and uh, so I, I, I think that that would be an interesting, a very important and interesting area for future research. Um, and I think uh, uh, um, um, art can inspire technology and vice versa. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I actually want to go back to what you were talking about, about companies needing to kind of remember their past, right, in order to innovate and and just truly do better in the future. So have you seen a company that maybe has a decent attrition rate? And how do they do that fairly well? Because at least sometimes what I see in corporate America is that not so great on documentation. And so a lot of that remembering is a, a person-to-person thing. Um, is there anywhere where you've seen that done really well? That's another interesting, uh, very important issue. And uh, I think uh, there is uh, a book that uh, from time to time I also quote uh, or uh, refer to in my class, uh, titled Knowledge Loss, uh, which actually poses uh, this question, especially for corporate America. And uh, of course, there might be firms that are more um, at risk, uh, especially companies uh, that uh, where human capital and especially uh, 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 capital and, uh, and companies that work in uh, in areas where there is a lot of craftsmanship involved, correct? Uh, um, but that is true in general. I mean, uh, the, the the book makes this uh, 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 point uh, very forcefully. Uh, uh, I studied, for instance, in my work, uh, Steinway, the Steinway company, the uh, piano making company, and the history of the company uh, until now has been uh, largely characterized by a very low attrition rate uh, in the sense that uh, 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 the companies, even after the Steinway, the Steinway family sold the company in 1971 uh, to CBS, uh, uh, the, the company has always understood the importance of retaining some of the uh, craftsmen, uh, the key uh, uh, workers uh, involved in, in the making of, of a grand concert piano, for instance. Uh, of course, this is a, the classical example of a firm that has 
based uh, to a large extent its own success on craftsmanship. So in that case, it's pretty intuitive that you have to retain these employees. But but uh, but uh, that is also that is also true for uh, high tech firms uh, like 3M, uh, Corning, which I mentioned already m- multiple times, or in general firms that uh, understand the importance of um, creating an environment where things are remembered. Uh, of course, they can be documented. You can codify that knowledge. You can create libraries, for instance, where uh, the work done by uh, people at the organization over time is documented. But but you also um, pass on knowledge from one generation of employees to the next by sort of adopting a master and apprentice uh, type of uh, 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 approach, correct? Uh, where the senior scientists or sci- senior engineers share with uh, newcomers uh, what they know. Um, um, one important uh, thing to keep in mind is that uh, much of the knowledge is documented, is uh, written down, but there is a lot of knowledge, sometimes the most important one that is uh, tacit. And if certain people leave, that knowledge will be lost, or at least uh, will leave with the firm. So the effort is to preserve that knowledge as much as, po- uh, much as possible, partly with uh, uh, an effort uh, made to codify it. But sometimes uh, the best way to uh, communicate that tacit knowledge is by watching the master. Uh, and uh, and that uh, which means that people uh, have to, to stay in the organization for much of their uh, career, correct? And so if you have very, very high attrition rates, uh, that is very difficult to achieve. Uh, and um, I hear from my students, for instance, that sometimes and for some of the companies that you're working for without making names, uh, that's the reality. People come and go. Uh, they're expendable. But that creates, uh, uh, in principle, some of the problems uh, because uh, that I was alluding to because sometimes people leave and they bring along uh, this knowledge that um, uh, sometimes have to be recreated correct, from, from scratch. Professor, do you have any parting thoughts for MBA students as they take on their first roles in companies? First of all, for me, uh, the, 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 the key question for an MBA, even before you look for a job, is to try to take advantage of the incredible opportunities that uh, 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 any degree, uh, but especially a degree that uh, is offered in New York, uh, provides. Uh, so I think uh, New York is, an, uh, for instance, Intellectually is an incredible experience, and not just uh, at the professional level. I think that um, uh, if you look at, at uh, some of the most successful managers, uh, uh, you uh, you learn about uh, how open-minded uh, and uh, some, uh, many times even interdisciplinary they are. They have a obviously a, 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 a specialization. They have a, a degree in a particular area, but they are also people capable of looking at the big picture. This is not just a matter of experience. And that, in my opinion, is the, 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 the mistake. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a, the ability to see things uh, holistically and also from a different perspective. Okay? Uh, and you can only understand that if you, for instance, uh, expose yourself to different influences, you are able to speak uh, the language um, of others. Um, um, so even a technical problem, as I was trying to say before, is can be looked at from a pure uh, technical standpoint, but it could also be looked at from an aesthetical standpoint. For instance, uh, uh, if you if you uh, if you look at, for instance, even mathematics, I mean, there is 
the, the among mathematicians, uh, one of the, what makes a great mathematician also is the, the ability to come up with a, a beautiful solution to a particular problem, not just a solution, a solution that is also beautiful. And of course, this aesthetic sense could be innate, uh, but could also uh, be developed, if you wish, by looking at uh, uh, beyond your narrow, narrowly defined uh, field uh, or area of expertise. So I think uh, something that I, I, I would suggest doing is to, for instance, uh, even taking classes that are not necessarily uh, in, uh, in the specific area in which you are uh, specializing, but gives you an opportunity to see things from a different perspective that might open uh, a window on something that uh, you would never even uh, think about. Uh, in terms of, uh, then the, there is another, uh, for me, important suggestion about how you look for your job, correct? And, and obviously, uh, the, the, you need to have a job because you need to have, uh, uh, to, to support yourself, to support your family. But to me, I mean, uh, sometimes the choice is between working for a, a, a large, highly reputed organizations or an organizations that, on the contrary, provides a different kind of experience. Uh, and I, for instance, encourage even some of my students to work for a startup. I mean, obviously, this is a high risk, but it could be an incredibly exciting uh, journey because it allows you to see uh, many more things and, uh, you, and you can really have a holistic view of what it takes to be uh, a successful firm because you can see, um, um, you can see uh, not just... A few, uh, a uh, little part of the big picture, but you see the big picture, and that could be extremely not only not, not not only extremely exciting, but also very ed educational. The other thing, uh, which I think is, for me uh, is very important, is uh, in uh, whatever uh, work you are doing. I mean, like for an academic, I mean, it's important to enjoy what you're doing, correct? I mean, so uh, and that seems to be an obvious statement, uh, but it is not because. I know, uh, for instance, many academics that see the paper like uh, an end in, in and of itself. And that is actually the wrong approach. I mean, I think that the process is just an outcome of, the, of a process. And I think that applies to academics, but I think it applies more broadly in whatever you do, correct? I mean, I think uh, the job is not because you get a high salary. It's not because you you work for a highly reputed uh, organizations. Uh, I think the job should be the process of uh, contributing to making uh, something valuable, and you have to enjoy that process. And if an organization does not provide uh, an, an environment where uh, the process is fun, uh, I don't think that you should uh, go choose that job. And But it's also a frame of mind, so you have to enjoy the process in, uh, in which you are involved. We spend so much time at work that liking what we do has to be part of the equation. So I, I definitely agree. Well, Professor Katani, um, you've given our listeners a lot of great advice and, and awesome companies to kind of look up and look further into if they really want to start getting their hands around innovation and it's all its different applications. Um, is there any podcast, book, newsletter, right, that you think our listeners would really kind of gain value from as they look into the topic more and apply it to their workspaces? Yeah, I think that there are some interesting books. Uh, uh, one that I also recommend in my class is the this book by Ed Catmull on uh, Creativity Inc. is uh, the story of his uh, journey. Um, before and uh, joining uh, and being a, a founding member of Pixar, uh, but also uh, 
uh, his work at Pixar is actually was uh, in many ways the Deus as machina of uh, the, the approach to in creativity and innovation at, uh, at uh, Pixar. That's a great book and uh, by a very serious uh, uh, person. Uh, so that uh, uh, I would it's a, a lot of it's a great uh, it's a great reading. Uh, there is a book that uh, is probably more academic, um, but uh, I think it's inspiring about uh, uh, or extremely interesting to understand um, some of the uh, some important contributions across different across different fields from psychoanalysis to feminine uh, feminist and uh, uh, femi- uh, feminist movement and uh, and to impressionist uh, is this book that I've read during. Uh, the last few weeks, uh, uh, collaborative uh, circles, written by uh, a sociolo- cultural sociologist from uh, Buffalo University, and this book is uh, by called Michael uh, Ferrell. Uh, I think this book is uh, extremely interesting, uh, and it can actually shed a lot of light uh, light on uh, how major achievements in different uh, contexts is really a, a collaborative effort among people that work closely for uh, some time. And uh, and the collaboration is not purely professional. It becomes also personal. And I think the, paper, the book is wonderful, I mean, at multiple levels. And and it would be, uh, I never thought about it, but even if you, uh, as a managerial implication, one uh, question would be, uh, can we create collaborative circles, true collaborative circles in, in our organizations? Uh, not just teams that work uh, together. So that is, for me, is an interesting, very interesting readings that I found uh, particularly uh, inspiring. The other uh, book that uh, I think it would, it's a very interesting book of a, of a visionary man, Henry Ford, uh, My Life and Work, uh, basically it's an autobiography, is, in my opinion, an inspiring book of someone who probably in many regards was the greatest uh, uh, entrepreneurs uh, in uh, Business history, probably and looking at the uh, what he did and the huge impact that uh, he had uh, uh, at his, I mean, uh, early on in the 20th century, but uh, but also for many more years to come. So th- these are very interesting, uh, very interesting uh, uh, books. Uh, I mean, there is there are many more, but I think these uh, to me are uh, interesting readings uh, uh, to make uh, for different reasons. One is a great entrepreneurs. One is a sociologist that has written very interesting work on creative, creativity and innovation and proposing this unique perspective, collaborative circle, and then uh, uh, a more uh, conventional but still very enlightening and insightful book uh, by uh, Ed Cartmull on Creativity Inc. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time and speaking with us today. We, uh, we enjoyed it so much. Well, thank you. I mean, it's my pleasure. And uh, of course, I'm uh, open to any any other conversation offline if necessary. Thank you so much.